we begin Part 3 with page 21 of the indictment. The defendant's use of dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to organize fraudulent slates of electors and cause them to transmit false certificates to Congress. As the defendant's attempts to obstruct the electoral vote through deceit of state officials met with repeated failure, beginning in early December 2020, he and co-conspirators developed a new plan to marshal individuals who would have served as the defendant's electors had he won the popular vote in seven targeted states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and cause those individuals to make and send to the vice president and Congress false certifications that they were legitimate electors. Under the plan, the submission of these fraudulent slates would create a fake controversy at the certification proceeding and position the vice president, presiding on January 6th as president of the Senate, to supplant legitimate electors with the defendant's fake electors and certify the defendant as president. The plan capitalized on ideas presented in memoranda drafted by co-conspirator 5, an attorney who was assisting the defendant's campaign with legal efforts related to a recount in Wisconsin. The memoranda evolved over time from a legal strategy to preserve the defendant's rights to a corrupt plan to subvert the federal government function by stopping Biden's electors' votes from being counted and certified, as follows. A. The November 18th Memorandum, or Wisconsin Memo, advocated that, because of the ongoing recount in Wisconsin, the defendants' electors there should meet and cast votes on December 14th, the date the ECA required appointed electors to vote, to preserve the alternative of the defendants' Wisconsin elector slate in the event the defendant ultimately prevailed in the state. B. The December 6th Memorandum, or Fraudulent Elector Memo, marked a sharp departure from Co-Conspirator 5's Wisconsin Memo, advocating that the alternate electors originally conceived of to preserve rights in Wisconsin instead be used in a number of states as fraudulent electors to prevent Biden from receiving the 270 electoral votes necessary to secure the presidency on January 6th. The fraudulent elector memo suggests that the defendants' electors in six purportedly contested states Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin should meet and mimic as best as possible the actions of the legitimate Biden electors and that on January 6th, the vice president should open and count the fraudulent votes setting up a fake controversy that would derail the proper certification of Biden as president-elect. C. The December 9th Memorandum, or Fraudulent Elector Instructions, consisted of co-conspirator 5's instructions on how fraudulent electors could mimic legitimate electors in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Co-conspirator 5 noted that in some states it would be virtually impossible 
for the fraudulent electors to successfully take the same steps as the legitimate electors because state law required formal participation in the process by state officials or access to official resources. The plan began in early December, and ultimately, the conspirators and the defendants' campaign took the Wisconsin memo and expanded it to any state that the defendant claimed was contested, even New Mexico, which the defendant had lost by more than 10% of the popular vote. This expansion was forecasted by emails of the defendant's chief of staff sent on December 6th, forwarding the Wisconsin memo to campaign staff and writing, We just need to have someone coordinating the electors for states. On December 6th, the defendant and co-conspirator 2 called the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee to ensure that the plan was in motion. During the call, co-conspirator 2 told the chairwoman that it was important for the RNC to help the defendant's campaign gather electors in targeted states, and falsely represented to her that such electors' votes would be used only if ongoing litigation in one of the states changed the results in the defendant's favor. After the RNC chairwoman consulted the campaign and heard that work on gathering electors was underway, she called and reported this information to the defendant, who responded approvingly. On December 7th, co-conspirator 1 received the Wisconsin memo and the fraudulent elector memo. Co-conspirator 1 spoke with co-conspirator 6 regarding attorneys who could assist in the fraudulent elector effort in the targeted states, and he received from co-conspirator 6 an email identifying attorneys in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. The next day, on December 8th, co-conspirator 5 called the Arizona attorney on co-conspirator 6's list. In an email after the call, the Arizona attorney recounted his conversation with co-conspirator 5 as followed. I just talked to the gentleman who did that memo, co-conspirator 5. His idea is basically that all of us, Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona, Pennsylvania, etc., have our electors send in their votes, even though the votes aren't legal under federal law because they're not signed by the governor so that members of Congress can fight about whether they should be counted on January 6th. They could potentially argue that they're not bound by federal law because they're Congress and make the law, etc. Kind of wild-slash-creative. I'm happy to discuss. My comment to him was that I guess there's no harm in it, legally at least, i.e., we would just be sending in fake electoral votes to Pence so that someone in Congress can make an objection when they start counting votes and start arguing that the fake votes should be counted. At Co-Conspirator 1's direction, on December 10th, Co-Conspirator 5 sent to points of contact in all targeted states except Wisconsin, which had already received his memos, and New Mexico, a streamlined version of the Wisconsin memo which did not reveal the intended fraudulent use of the defendant's electors, and the fraudulent elector instructions, 
along with fraudulent elector certificates that he had drafted. The next day, on December 11th, through Co-Conspirator 5, Co-Conspirator 1 suggested that the Arizona lawyer file a petition for certiorari in the Supreme Court as a pretext to claim that litigation was pending in the state, to provide cover for the convening and voting of the defendant's fraudulent electors there. Co-Conspirator 5 explained that Co-Conspirator 1 had heard from a state official and state provisional elector that it could appear treasonous for the Arizona electors to vote on Monday if there is no pending court proceeding. To manage the plan in Pennsylvania on December 12th, Co-Conspirator 1, Co-Conspirator 5, and Co-Conspirator 6 participated in a conference call organized by the defendant's campaign with the defendant's electors in that state. When the defendant's electors expressed concern about signing certificates representing themselves as legitimate electors, Co-Conspirator 1 falsely assured them that their certificates would be used only if the defendant succeeded in litigation. Subsequently, Co-Conspirator 6 circulated proposed conditional language to that effect for potential inclusion in the fraudulent elector certificates. A campaign official cautioned not to offer the conditional language to other states because the other states are signing what he prepared. If it gets out we changed the language for Pennsylvania, it could snowball. In some cases, the defendant's electors refused to participate in the plan. On December 13th, Co-Conspirator 5 sent Co-Conspirator 1 an email memorandum that further confirmed that the conspirators' plan was not to use the fraudulent electors only in the circumstance that the defendant's litigation was successful in one of the targeted states. Instead, the plan was to falsely present the fraudulent slates as an alternative to the legitimate slates at Congress's certification proceeding. On December 13th, the defendant asked the senior campaign advisor for an update on what was going on with the elector plan and directed him to put out a statement on electors. As a result, Co-Conspirator 1 directed the senior campaign advisor to join a conference call with him, Co-Conspirator 6, and others. When the senior campaign advisor related these developments in text messages to the deputy campaign manager, a senior advisor to the defendant, and a campaign staffer, the deputy campaign manager responded, Here's the thing. The way this has morphed, it's a crazy play, so I don't know who wants to put their name on it. The senior advisor wrote, Certifying Illegal Votes. In turn, the participants in the group text message refused to have a statement regarding electors attributed to their names because none of them could stand by it. Also on December 13th, at a campaign staffer's request, Co-Conspirator 5 drafted and sent fraudulent elector certificates for the defendant's electors in New Mexico, which had not previously been among the targeted states, and where there was no pending litigation on the defendant's behalf. The next day, the defendant's campaign filed an election challenge suit in New Mexico, 
at 11.54 a.m., six minutes before the noon deadline for the electors' votes, as a pretext so that there was pending litigation there at the time the fraudulent electors voted. On December 14th, the legitimate electors of all 50 states and the District of Columbia met in their respective jurisdictions to formally cast their votes for president, resulting in a total of 232 electoral votes for the defendant and 306 for Biden. The legitimate electoral votes that Biden won in the states that the defendant targeted and the defendant's margin of defeat were as follows. Arizona, 11 electoral votes, 10,457 votes. Georgia, 16 electoral votes, 11,779 votes. Michigan, 16 electoral votes, 154,188 votes. Nevada, 6 electoral votes, 33,596 votes. New Mexico, 5 electoral votes, 99,720 votes. Pennsylvania, 20 electoral votes, 80,555 votes and Wisconsin, 10 electoral votes, 20,682 votes. On the same day, at the direction of the defendant and co-conspirator one, fraudulent electors convened sham proceedings in the seven targeted states to cast fraudulent electoral ballots in favor of the defendant. In some states, in order to satisfy legal requirements set forth for legitimate electors under state law, state officials were enlisted to provide the fraudulent electors access to state capitol buildings so that they could gather and vote there. In many cases, however, as co-conspirator 5 had predicted in the fraudulent elector instructions, the fraudulent electors were unable to satisfy the legal requirements. Nonetheless, as directed in the fraudulent elector instructions, shortly after the fraudulent electors met on December 14th, the targeted state's fraudulent elector certificates were mailed to the President of the Senate, the Archivist of the United States, and others. The defendant and co-conspirators ultimately used the certificates of these fraudulent electors to deceitfully target the government function and did so contrary to how fraudulent electors were told they were to be used. Unlike those of the fraudulent electors, consistent with the ECA, the legitimate electors' signed certificates were annexed to the state executive's certificates of ascertainment before being sent to the President of the Senate and others. That evening, at 6.26 p.m., the RNC chairwoman forwarded to the defendant, through his executive assistant, an email titled, Electors Recap, Final, which represented that in six contested states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, the defendant's electors had voted in parallel to Biden's electors. The defendant's executive assistant responded, It's in front of him. 
the defendants attempt to leverage the Justice Department to use deceit to get state officials to replace legitimate electors and electoral votes with the defendants. In late December 2020, the defendant attempted to use the Justice Department to make knowingly false claims of election fraud to officials in the targeted states through a formal letter under the acting Attorney General's signature, thus giving the defendant's lies the backing of the federal government and attempting to improperly influence the targeted states to replace legitimate Biden electors with the defendants. On December 22nd, the defendant met with co-conspirator 4 at the White House. Co-conspirator 4 had not informed his leadership at the Justice Department of the meeting, which was a violation of the Justice Department's written policy restricting contacts with the White House to guard against improper political influence. On December 26th, Co-conspirator 4 spoke on the phone with acting attorney general and lied about the circumstances of his meeting with the defendant at the White House, falsely claiming that the meeting had been unplanned. The acting attorney general directed Co-conspirator 4 not to have unauthorized contacts with the White House again, and Co-conspirator 4 said he would not. The next morning, on December 27th, Contrary to the acting Attorney General's direction, Co-Conspirator 4 spoke with the defendant on the defendant's cell phone for nearly three minutes. That afternoon, the defendant called the acting Attorney General and acting Deputy Attorney General and said, among other things, People tell me Co-Conspirator 4 is great. I should put him in. The defendant also raised multiple false claims of election fraud, which the Acting Attorney General and Acting Deputy Attorney General refuted. When the Acting Attorney General told the defendant that the Justice Department could not and would not change the outcome of the election, the defendant responded, Just say that the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. On December 28th, Co-Conspirator 4 sent a draft letter to the Acting Attorney General and Acting Deputy Attorney General, which he proposed they all sign. The draft was addressed to state officials in Georgia, and Co-Conspirator 4 proposed sending versions of the letter to elected officials in other targeted states. The proposed letter contained numerous knowingly false claims about the election and the Justice Department including that A. The Justice Department had identified significant concerns that may have impacted the outcome of the election in multiple states. B. The Justice Department believed that in Georgia and other states, two valid slates of electors had gathered at the proper location on December 14th and that both sets of ballots had been transmitted to Congress that is, Co-Conspirator 4's letter sought to advance the defendant's fraudulent elector plan by using the authority of the Justice Department to falsely present the fraudulent electors as a valid alternative to the legitimate electors. C. The Justice Department urged that the state legislature convene a special legislative session to create the opportunity to, among other things, 
choose the fraudulent electors over the legitimate electors. The acting Deputy Attorney General promptly responded to co-conspirator 4 by email and told him that his proposed letter was false, writing, Despite dramatic claims to the contrary, we have not seen the type of fraud that calls into question the reported and certified results of the election. In a meeting shortly thereafter, the Acting Attorney General and Acting Deputy Attorney General again directed co-conspirator 4 not to have unauthorized contact with the White House. On December 31st, the defendant summoned to the Oval Office the Acting Attorney General, Acting Deputy Attorney General, and other advisors. In the meeting, the defendant again raised claims about election fraud that Justice Department officials already had told him were not true and that the senior Justice Department officials reiterated were false and suggested he might change the leadership in the Justice Department. On January 2, 2021, just four days before Congress's certification proceeding, co-conspirator 4 tried to coerce the acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general to sign and send co-conspirator 4's draft letter, which contained false statements to state officials. He told them that the defendant was considering making co-conspirator 4 the new acting attorney general, but that co-conspirator 4 would decline the defendant's offer if the acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general would agree to send the proposed letter to the targeted states. The Justice Department officials refused. The next morning, on January 3rd, despite having uncovered no additional evidence of election fraud, co-conspirator 4 sent to a Justice Department colleague an edited version of his draft letter to the states, which included a change from its previous claim that the Justice Department had concerns to a stronger false claim that, as of today, there is evidence of significant irregularities that may have impacted the outcome of the election in multiple states. Also, on the morning of January 3rd, co-conspirator 4 met with the defendant at the White House, again without having informed senior Justice Department officials, and accepted the defendant's offer that he become acting attorney general. On the afternoon of January 3rd, co-conspirator 4 spoke with a deputy White House counsel. The previous month, the deputy White House counsel had informed the defendant that there is no world, there is no option in which you do not leave the White House on January 20th. Now, the same deputy White House counsel tried to dissuade co-conspirator 4 from assuming the role of acting attorney general. The Deputy White House Counsel reiterated to Co-Conspirator 4 that there had not been outcome-determinative fraud in the election and that if the defendant remained in office nonetheless, there would be riots in every major city in the United States. Co-Conspirator 4 responded, Well, Deputy White House Counsel, that's why there's an Insurrection Act. Also that afternoon, Co-Conspirator 4 met with the acting attorney general and told him that the defendant had decided to put Co-Conspirator 4 in charge of the Justice Department. The acting attorney general responded that he would not accept being fired by a subordinate 
and immediately scheduled a meeting with the defendant for that evening. On the evening of January 3rd, the defendant met for a briefing on an overseas national security issue with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and other senior national security advisors. The chairman briefed the defendant on the issue, which had previously arisen in December, as well as possible ways the defendant could handle it. When the chairman and another advisor recommended that the defendant take no action because Inauguration Day was only 17 days away and any course of action could trigger something unhelpful, the defendant calmly agreed, stating, Yeah, you're right. It's too late for us. We're going to give that to the next guy. The defendant moved immediately from this national security briefing to the meeting that the acting attorney general had requested earlier that day, which included co-conspirator 4, the acting attorney general, the acting deputy attorney general, the Justice Department's assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel, the White House counsel, a deputy White House counsel, and a senior advisor. At the meeting, the defendant expressed frustration with the acting attorney general for failing to do anything to overturn the election results, and the group discussed co-conspirator 4's plans to investigate purported election fraud and to send his proposed letter to state officials, a copy of which was provided to the defendant during the meeting. The defendant relented in his plan to replace the acting attorney general with co-conspirator 4, only when he was told that it would result in mass resignations at the Justice Department and of his own White House counsel. At the meeting in the Oval Office on the night of January 3rd, co-conspirator 4 suggested that the Justice Department should opine that the vice president could exceed his lawful authority during the certification proceeding and change the election outcome. When the assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel began to explain why the Justice Department should not do so, the defendant said, No one here should be talking to the vice president. I'm talking to the vice president, and ended the discussion. <laughs> We've come to the end of part three of this indictment. If you've made it this far, hang in there. We have only 14 pages left, which we will cover next in part four, picking up on page 32.